0: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Learning Hour. Today is ten seventh, two thousand eighteen. I will keep it at that because that's the easiest format I can use and tell you what date this is. And myself. We start off with Parsha Samon. May it be your will, Hashem, our God, and the God of our fathers, that you arrange for the livelihood of all of the people of your nation, of your nation Israel, including my livelihood and that of my household. May it come easily and without hardship, with dignity and without degradation, in permissible ways and without involving any prohibitions, so that we may perform your service and study your Torah, just as you provided food for our forefathers in the arid desert land. Hashem said to Meishah, Behold, I am going to rain down for you bread from heaven, and the people will go out and gather each day's portion so that I can test them to see whether they will follow my teachings or not and on the sixth day they will prepare what they will bring, and it will be double that which they gather every other day. And Myshe and Aharon said to all Bene Israel, In the evening you will know that it was Hashem who took you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see Hashem's glory, in that He hears your complaints against Hashem, and that He, and and what are we, that you complain to us. And Maisha said, when Hashem gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread in the morning, With which to be sated, when Hashem hears the complaints that you complain about Him, of what significance are we? Your complaints are not about us, but about Hashem. And Moshe said to Aharon, Tell the entire congregation of Bnei Yisrael, draw close to Hashem, for He has heard your complaints. And at the moment that Aharin spoke to the entire congregation of B'nei Israel, they turned toward the desert, and behold, the glory of Hashem appeared in the cloud. And Hashem spoke to Misha saying, I have heard the Jewish people's complaints speak to them, saying, in the late afternoon you will eat meat, and in the morning you will become full with bread. Then you will know that I am Hashem, your God. And in the evening the quail rose and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. Midbar, Dak The layer of dew rose, and behold, on the desert surface, a fine substance was exposed, as fine as frost on the earth. When Bnei Israel saw it, they said to one another, It is man, for they did not know what it was. And Moshe said to them, This is the bread that Hashem has given you to eat. This is what Hashem has commanded. Everyone shall gather from it as much as he needs to eat, and Omer for each individual. According to the number of people in each man's tent, you shall take. And B'nai Yisrael did so. They gathered it. One gathered more and one gathered less. And they measured it by the Aimer, and whoever gathered a lot had no more, and whoever gathered a little had no less. Each man gathered as much as he was meant to eat. And Maisha said to them, No one may leave over any of it until morning. Maisha but they did not listen to maisha, and there were people who left over some of it until morning. And it became infested with worms, and it ratted, and maisha reacted with anger toward them. They gathered it each and every morning, everyone according to what he needed to eat, and when the sun became hot, it melted. It melted. And on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, two imers for each person, and all the leaders of the community came and reported it to Misha. And he said to them, That is what Hashem said. Tomorrow is a day of rest, a holy Shabbos to Hashem. Bake whatever you will bake and cook whatever you will cook, and leave over all that remains to be stored until morning. And they left it over until morning as Misha had commanded, and it did not rot, and not a worm was in it. And Moshe said, eat it today, because today is Hashem's Shabbos. Today you will not find it in the field. For six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, which is Shabbos, none will be there. It happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found nothing. How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my teachings? See that Hashem has given you the Shabbos. Therefore, on the sixth day, He gives you bread for two days. Let each man remain in his place, let no man leave his place on the seventh day. And the nation rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel called it man, and it was shaped like coriander seeds, white, and its flavor was like a wafer fried in honey. Meloih ha'oymer mimenul imishmeres <laughs> l'dar esehem, yiru esalechem, asher achalti eshem, m'amidbar boitzi eshem, me'aretz Mitzrayim. Ma'isha said, "This is what Hashem commanded: Let one oimer measure of it be kept through your generations, so that they may see the bread that I fed you in the desert when I took you out of the land of Egypt." Vayemer Ma'isha laharin kachzin senes achas v'sen shama meloi ha'oymer mon v'hanach oisai lifnei adin olim imishmeres and Maishah said to Aharin, take one jar and put it in an oimer's measure of mon, and place it before Hashem to be kept for your generations. Kasher tziva adinoyol Maishah veyanicheyo Aharin lethnei edus lemishmaris. Just as Hashem commanded Maishah, so Aharin placed it to be kept in front of the Orin Kaidash. V'nei Yisrael ochlu esamon arbaim shano at bayam alaretz neishaves esamon ochlu at bayam alakitzei heretz and Bnei Yisrael ate the man for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the man until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And an oimer is one tenth of an eifa. We are now up to praying with joy for prayers for Parnassah. We're up to week two, Sunday, day eight. We're learning today in the Schus of. Liba Miriam Geula Basleya, should have a refor shleima. Avram Machal ben Sari should have a refus shleima. Yisrael ben Karen Devare should have a refor shleima. Hillel Yehuda ben Elka should be matzliach. Liba gito, Bas Shena Malka should have a refor shleima. Taiba Matel Bas Esther she should have a refor shleima. Moshe ben Taiba Matel he should be matzliach in whatever he does. And Yaakov Avi Yeshaya ben Chayin Achama you should have a complete recovery or complete refor shleima. It says in the Eschem And Myshe and Aharain said to all B'nai Yisrael, In the evening you will know that it was Hashem who took you out of the land of Egypt. Shemais chapter 16 verse 6. Principles of Emuna and B'Tachin derived from this verse. 1. Eating meals at set times shows that we are eating in order to gain strength to serve Hashem. 2. Receiving one's sustenance is a greater miracle than all those that occurred when the nation was leaving the bondage of Egypt. Therefore, a person should thank and praise Hashem every day for bringing him his livelihood. Eating like a human being. The Sephorno explains this verse. Misha said, May it be Hashem's will that what he said to me regarding giving you food will be fulfilled in the following manner. May he give you your evening's needs in the evening, so that you may know that Hashem has extracted you from Egypt completely, for He will distance you from their practices as well. In Egypt, they would sit by the pots of food and devour their food without having any particular mealtime, as animals do. As Chazal said, At first Yisrael were like chickens pecking in the dung heap, until Misha came and gave them set mealtimes. According to the Sephorno. we can understand how the people came to understand this aspect of Yetzias Mitzrayim in the evening when the quail came down. Now that the Jewish people were eating meat only in the evening, the contrast between the pots of food in Egypt and their actions after they left Egypt was clearly evident. Because eating meat is such a physical act, it requires boundaries to ensure that we do not overindulge in it. A person needs to have set times for eating and should not simply follow the whims of his appetite always responding to his stomach's desire like a chicken pecking in a dung heap. The evening meal, when the Jewish people were were consuming the quail meat, was the ideal time to reinforce this principle. Having a set meal time gives one a sense of the value of importance of eating. However, a person who becomes too focused on his meal schedule risks becoming overly involved in the act of eating. How can one balance the need for a set meal schedule with the need to avoid getting carried away with one's eating? When Myshe Rabbeinu established set times for meals, with meat in the evening and bread in the morning, he also instituted the practice of reciting Bircha Samazain. Bircha Samazain is based on praising and blessing Hashem for the food, and one who recites it will not eat solely to satisfy his physical desires. Reciting Bircha Samazain with the proper focus and intent helps one to recognize that the purpose of eating is to enable us to serve Hashem. <coughs> We are now up to Evdu'ez Hashem B'Simcha, Serve Hashem with Joy, Chapter 4, Part 1. The Beauty, Pride, and Happiness, Hashem's Great Goodness, Solely for Your Benefit. This chapter comprises ideas presented by Rabbi Avigdor Miller Zatzal of America, called from his books and the thousands of Ashkafa tapes he recorded over the years. He was a giant among men, a fearless tzaddik, and massive talmud chacham devoted to learning Lishmah without interruption. His practical approach emphasizing the beauty, pride, and happiness of Tyra True Living, reinforced with his personal example, is based on Chayves Salvavis, Sha'ar HaBechina and on Rambam Yisoy Chapter 2 Alacha 5. Warning, whatever is presented here can merely hope to scratch the surface. Appreciation of what Hashem is constantly and lovingly bestowing on us is a vast and inexhaustible subject. What wealth it casts at our feet. But to the untrained, it is so foreign. To bother to even examine it seems queer to us, at first. That is until we decide to stop complaining and criticizing everything, and start truly living by enjoying the world's untold gifts, just waiting to be noticed. After which, our hearts will be opened up wide to joyfully serve Hashem, as we thrill to the adventure of a life full of offerings, presentations of bouquets and flowers, of gifts at every turn and endless arrays of the most sumptuous delights, all cost-free, naturally, as long as we are fulfilling mitzvahs. Let's consider a few examples. Our wealth and senses and abilities, bequeathed in varying degrees, yet very much in our power to enhance, functioning kidneys, liver, eyesight, two amazing recording cameras, sense of taste, thousands of taste buds instead of just a few. The list of gifts goes on and on. How about our brain, talents, strength, all given to us to use and improve upon. And no need to wait for a birthday. Just enjoy a constant flow of treats, not occasioned by anything in particular. This is the daily fear of all who live in the world of Rabbi Victor Miller. Absolutely free of charge, you imbibe the kindliness, generosity, and goodness of Hashem, and consequently, you always feel loved and uplifted. You see His plan and purpose in the intricate design and the multifunctional details of everything around you, till you're spoiled for choice of reasons to be grateful. Study an orange with its ingenious design. Consider how your cup of coffee gets to your table including all the processes of pe- and people working to make it happen. Immerse your face in water for a minute, and then relish the air you breathe upon withdrawal. These simple exercises, which are by Victor Miller himself dev- devised, contemplated, and yes, performed, prove the point. It seems simply too amazing to be true, but with proper thought, it sinks in. This world and all its manifold details are really here, Solely for your pleasure and benefit. And then it dawns on you. Hashem truly loves you. He appreciates everything you do. He values your awareness of Him and wants to elevate your status by cementing a relationship with you. So, directly or indirectly, He keeps piling on the gifts that will bring you good cheer. Naturally, there are some folks around you who, uneducated, choose to ignore it all and prefer to grumble and gripe. They cannot comprehend that a specialized feast is laid out for them to enjoy, whilst it's also guiding their vision towards the true Torah way of living. One can point out Hashem's beauties even to children as young as two or three years of age. Regularly and seriously make it part of your conversation and sow a happiness-inducing state of mind, whilst they're still young and impressionable before they simply take the good things of this world for granted, which naturally wraps their, warps their perspective. Any time is a good time. Use Shabbos meals or family outings as your forum, and your toddlers will learn, will learn to think along these lines, finding it interesting, even exciting and delightfully satisfying. A side benefit you yourself will grow in the process. Why do parents go to the expense of Trump and trouble of buying all sorts of playthings and treats for their children because they want to see them happy, smiling, and appreciative. We are all Hashem's children, and He created this world just to give us joy. Hashem's wish is that man should enjoy the gifts that he bestows on him. The result is a deep sense of gratitude for all his kindness, and thereby one comes close to Hashem and is bound up with loving Him. Note the bracha recited upon seeing blossoms on a fruit tree in springtime. Blessed are you who created goodly trees in order to give pleasure to people. Believe it or not, that's the bracha. Needless to say, the intended recipients are not the gayim, but us, so that we can be drawn into a closer relationship with our Father. Does it sound like too much pleasure? As if we are overindulging ourselves? Weren't we always warned about the dangers of guzzling the good things of this world, and that unless we distance ourselves from them, we will lose sight of life's purpose and grow disenchanted toward divine service? So what's all this newfangled talk of enjoying every iota of creation? More than that, if our purpose is to experience joy here, why do people find it so difficult to experience this joy? Hashem's world provides animals with all their needs, and they're generally happy and satisfied with their food and shelter. We humans can go to work and earn more than enough to cover our basic needs, but are always restlessly seeking more and never really satisfied. What does it all mean? Let's let's get some insight into this puzzle with a fanciful muscle. <coughs> Excuse me. No more than a prelude. Imagine that a large, important-looking envelope has just been posted into your mailbox. You pick it up and wide-eyed... Read the invitation to attend a sumptuous banquet in a most fabulous, elaborate hall. Wow! You can't wait to make the most of this strike of unbelievably good fortune. Of course, your reply card will be in the affirmative, and at once you start organizing whatever you will need to be completely ready, anticipating a most wonderful, memorable afternoon and evening. You will need to be appropriately dressed and immaculately groomed, of course. You also want to be sure to arrive in a relaxed frame of mind, alert, and not tired out from the journey, feeling comfortable, yet with a hearty appetite. Then you start to work out the finer details. No one wants to turn up on the big day and stand there feeling like a fool. So how about some research and rehearsal? What sort of music will the world-class band be playing? To really enjoy it, you need to to familiarize yourself with the selection It will be helpful to know the words and tunes being sung by the singers. You will furthermore wish to be fluent in the dance steps and to have some idea of what sort of light conversation to make with other guests at your table. You make a mental note to yourself to remember to take a good look at the vast vaulted ceiling above you and at the stately curved oaken staircase. Wouldn't you appreciate a preview of the menu? You don't want to miss any details or highlights. With all that preparation, training, and anticipation, when you alight from your car at this billion dollar building, you're going to confidently, you're going to confidently enter the foyer. You know, it's only a lobby. Later, when you hear your name announced, you will walk into the dazzlingly opulent hall, but you'll cope with ease because you've done your homework well. You're attuned to this new state. So the, so the acculturation poses no problem. You've used your time and resourcefulness to be fully in sync. You're confident and relaxed, ready for the full gamut of upcoming delights. The foyer is a stunningly beautiful hall, true. Hard to believe that it's only a lobby. Here guests shed their coats and lightly straighten out their attire. A bar has been laid out with some drinks, canopies, and tasty tidbits, I think that's how you say it, of every sort. No one is rushed. So whilst waiting around for proceedings to begin, anyone can help themselves to beverages such as soft drinks or tomato juice, or some other appetite wedding introduction to the real banquet. You notice that there is nothing served here that would be substantially filling or could replace the actual meal. In in fact, these hors d'oeuvres and tiny crackers spread with sharp-tasting delicacies are served to awaken digestive juices to cope with what is to follow. The menu so far is clearly no more than a prelude. Yes, you guess right. The lobby is the muscle, and is the lobby and the muscle is this world. Here we ready ourselves for the fabulous banquet of the next world. This world is made for us to enjoy, and there are many more courses yet to come. But more than that, we must train ourselves to constantly bear in mind that this is where we acclimatize. So that we can appreciate the future extravaganza. We need this preparation. You can't enjoy arriving at a wedding with no idea of who's who or what's going to be happening. Therein lies the key to our appreciating all Hashem gives us. We have to be in touch with the exciting pleasures that can accustom us to the sweetness of Torah and mitzvahs. Treat yourself to a taste of the elevated state of connecting to Hashem. It won't be possible upon your arrival to Elam Haba to suddenly leap into the appropriate emotions and rise to states of lofty ecstasy. You need to learn how it feels to have Hashem feature prominently in your life while you are still down here. Then you can walk into the hall, equipped to appreciate the bliss that awaits you. Let your heart overflow. This explains the wealth of different foods and flowers and other lovely treats of every kind that are laid out in our world, our lobby. For our enjoyment. They constitute a little sip. A mere inkling of the forthcoming program. Whilst enjoying Hashem's bounty here. Offer thanks to Him in return. And grow accustomed to the sound of your voice. Praising Him. And singing to Him from the bottom of your heart. This prepares you for the non-stop delights awaiting you. For which you won't ever want to stop thanking Him. So whatever Hashem sends. Be it a small detail or something big. Notice it, enjoy it, and let your heart overflow with a song of gratitude because that will have you in trim for the stupendous event that you've been invited to partake of, and not just for one evening, but forever. This is not coercion. Hashem leaves the choice to us. To facilitate real choice, there is always that Yetzirah lurking. Silently, he throws a misty darkness over all the sparkling wonders around you, You are led to believe it's just natural and merely the way of the world. He makes sure you don't too easily spot the prime cause, the benevolent giver of the wealth whose blessings you receive at every turn. As we know, there are plenty of people walking through life content to be absolutely blind to its breathtaking goodness. But not you. You're going to be one of the smart ones. You're going to make the effort to prepare your appetite here, for the mega-marvels of the world to come. Congratulations! It's a double win. Sing in Olam Haze, and you'll be singing in Olam Haba. Spoiling one's appetite. Before any reader runs away with the impression that the ideas expressed here give one license to upgrade culinary expectations to smorgasbord standards for every day of the week, let's remember, standards for every day of the week Wait, I just read the same sentence twice. So let's remember. I guess we have to remember it better. You are still in the antechamber. That is obvious. Seeking this worldly pleasures is never going to breed anything but dissatisfaction and more seeking. For the simple reason that this lobby is the place for aperitifs. It's not meant for meal-sized portions. Only little nibbles that stimulate one's digestive juices in preparation for real banqueting. So help yourself to some choice morsels and enjoy them as an aid to working up a hearty appetite for the gourmet meal to come. This accords perfectly with the intention of your host. It is a mitzvah to appreciate and enjoy all the pleasures that come with healthy, wholesome living. We cannot really thank Hashem for His gifts if we haven't even enjoyed them. Sometimes we may also need to turn to the pleasures of this world to aid us in enjoying life and lifting our mood. However, as a lifestyle, indulgence in luxuries has a way of spoiling one's appetite for the delights of the next world. A fine line must be drawn, or we distance ourselves devastatingly far from Hashem. And Ilam Haba is all about closeness to him. Sensible parents, much as they like to please their child, will firmly limit his intake of sugary snacks and drinks not because they wish to to deny him the joys of candy-sucking, but preserve his teeth for a lifetime of trouble-free service. Incidentally, minimizing sweets will aid their child in developing a taste for fresh, healthy fruits and salad stuffs. A person who eats plain fear and finds plenty of reasons to thank Hashem for it will attain far more pleasure than those dipping into their upteenth packet of toffees. This is not to be confused with, with parishus, which must be governed by a certain set of rules. Primarily, that it is carried out purely to give nachas ruach to Hashem. Even we desire to achieve Madregus, Even the desire to achieve Madregus is not enough. Denying oneself all sorts of pleasures, but not keeping it in line with proper parishus guidelines, is reckoned a sin. Hashem created the world to give us pleasure, for which we thank Him. Thus, he has nachas ruach from seeing us fit in with his infinitely brilliant master plan. The goal is to enjoy to the fullest whatever Hashem has sent your way, but to resist expending various resources to pursue more and more. Stay with me. A welter of praise, appreciation, and thanksgiving. When Hashem sees how correctly we use the bounty he has sent us, he is likely to send us more. The Rambam wrote about this encouraging, hearty, warming, heartwarming thought. Keeping mitzvahs attracts a physical world reward too. The wherewithal and the opportunity to keep even more mitzvahs. Another reason for his reciprocal stance is that Hashem always picks up on our cues and leads us along the path we select. On the way a man wants to go, so he is led, says Chazal. Life is not a, as haphazard as it seems. Basically, It is tailored according to what we, mostly subconsciously, really want. If we apt to thank Hashem on and on for His goodness, He will shower us with more kindness. Sorry. If we apt to thank Hashem on and on for His kindness, He will shower us with more kindness so that we are stirred to thank Him even more and to subsequently yearn for His closeness. Hashem, so to speak, goes along with our preferences. If we choose to not offer thanks that Hashem feels constrained to withhold his chesed. Not that his bank is ever short of money. It's in order to prod us to turn towards him and plead for our needs. It certainly is greatly appreciated by Hashem when we beg him as the source of all. And he even longs to hear our voices raised in fervent prayer. Optimally, he'd rather it was joyousness that prompted us and that our tefillahs gush forth in a welter Of praise, appreciation, and thanksgiving. Parents invariably hope to receive letters from the out of town children, but letters that are full of gratitude and happiness are always preferred to those requesting more money. Receiving lovely gifts is something that's bound to put us in an upbeat frame of mind. We may have a large sum of money stashed away somewhere, but if we forget it's there, it's as if we haven't got it. Only when we do focus on it and fantasize about it, then our spirits are on high. For a gift to be exciting, it need, it need be neither glamorous nor costly. The fact is that Hashem is constantly sending us wonderful gifts. We ignore them due to their constancy. All that is lacking is for us to open our eyes and pay attention, as if for the first time, to imagine what our life would be like without health, wealth, family, and so much more. With that mindset, we can note the intricate details of all that Hashem bestows upon us constantly all planned with infinite purpose to make our lives more comfortable, pleasurable, smooth, running, and safe. To sweeten our day, to pepper life experiences, to oil our functioning, and preserve our well-being. <clears throat> we are now up to Shleish third discourse concerning the Holy, Sh- the Holy Shabbos, part three. In the second discourse, we explain the difference between the divine revelation in the world at large versus the revelation manifested through the Jewish people. Although God's divinity is revealed through everything in the world and the whole world is full of his glory, nonetheless, that revelation is only an expression of his power and not his essence. The revelation of godliness in all of the types of creations, the various species and individuals which comprise all of creation are only sparks of his illuminating power whereas the illumination which is manifested through the Jewish people is that of God's holy essence. Although even in the world at large, his wisdom and Kedusha can be discerned, it is only through careful contemplation, using one's das and nefesh, that man can understand that the creator of the world fashioned the universe through wisdom. If one does not reach a sufficient level of discerning, then he will not understand, since he perceives only a physical world, which expresses only God's power. Any inkling of God's wisdom or Kedusha will be as one who tells of light shining far away. A Jew, on the other hand, embodies in his mind and heart the actual illumination of God's Kedusha and Das. When a Jew contemplates the Torah, which is Hashem's Das, he is led to other holy spiritual thoughts of God and Avaydas Hashem, and he focuses on God and yearns to draw closer to him. All of these holy desires and thoughts are an actual revelation of God's light within the Jewish individual. The Jew is an expression of an aspect of the revelation of Mount Sinai, reflecting the illumination of God's essential Kedusha and Chachma, Sittikune HaZayar 2nd We have demonstrated the distinctions between the souls of inanimate objects, plants, animals, and man, as well as the distinctions in the revelations of the four worlds, which are all revelations of God's light. All of the nefashis reflect the one supernal nefesh, which in this world is expressed in separate bodies. So too, it should be clear that the revelation through the Nishmasisral as expressed in each individual Jew, is actually the revelation of a single supernal neshama, the neshama of K'lau which is distinct from the revelation of other nefashis, of inanimate objects, plants and animals, and even people. This neshama manifests itself through individual Jews and is known above as Knesset Yisrael. Since the soul, called Knesses Yisrael, reveals not only Hashem's power, but even his, esen- his essential kedusha and Chachma, as explained above, our holy sages refer to this soul as Isha, woman, or wife. This is, so to speak, as the Torah describes the creation of the first woman, For she was taken from man, a bone from her husband's bones, flesh from his flesh. A man's wife reveals his chachma, his das, and even a portion of his mind by bearing his children. For these are from the for these are from the traits which a father bequeaths to his son. A son's mind is from his father's mind. So too, Knesset Yisrael, Nishma Yisrael on high, is the queen of the Almighty King who reveals himself in the soul of individual Jews. All of the revelation through the entire world and all of the revelation through the various souls are all for her benefit. For it is through her that the illumination of the king's essence, so to speak, is revealed in the world. This revelation is the essential purpose of the creation of the world and the revelation as a whole. Now, the essence and meaning of a Jew, of the Jew, a riddle, which has puzzled the whole world is understood. The Medrash in Echa Raba and Echa Rabsa Rab, Rab, Rabasi One records how the nations of the world are amazed and ask why the Jewish people are so often willing to be slaughtered for the sanctification of God's name, willing to submit themselves to stoning, burning, beheading, and strangulation rather than violate God's Torah. If this is your only question, nations of the world, then we will add much more to your amazement. In fact. We are amazed at your, at your wonderment. We add to your question why is the entire life of a Jew a life of self sacrifice? Not only when he is, God forbid, asked to denounce his God, does he jump like a ram onto the altar, but his whole life is one of religious tests. From the moment he emerges from his mother's womb until his last breath, he is pursued, his head aches, his heart pangs. But from the Holy One of Israel, he will not stray even for a year's breath. This is this is his being, and this is his essence. His heart beats and his soul breathes with the breath of complete self-sacrifice. He learns the Torah, keeps the Shabbos, educates his children in the ways of the Torah, and all of his avodah is to Hashem, not in a superficial or offhanded way, rather everything he does is self-sacrifice. So why nations of the world, are you amazed and inquire about us? Do you not realize that it is not a simple force from this world which is revealed within us? Do you not see that the Ashish Echail, the supernal queen, crown of her supernal husband, manifests herself within us and acts through us? And since she is above the limitations of this world, all of its trials and their accompanying suffering do not disturb her. Her deeds are the work of God and are not subject to worldly limitations. The day is near when her husband will come to rescue her. He will raise her up from her infirmity, shake off the dust from her, and her light will spread from one end of the earth to another. All the inhabitants of the world will be ashamed, and the dwellers of earth will fear and proclaim, Woe unto us, for we have trampled beneath our feet the supernal queen. We have maliciously abused a manifestation of the soul of the Almighty. And his kedusha. dishmaya. I love using that word. Because everybody uses it when they're talking on a microphone. Dishmaya. We are starting Lessons in Tanya, Chapter 13, Part 3. Excuse my Hebrew when I read this because it's no Nekudas. Ve'af Hashem even if one's entire aspiration is in God's Tyra, which he studies day and night for its own sake, this is still no proof whatsoever that the evil has been dislodged from its place. Perhaps rather, the essence and substance of the evil are in their full strength and might in his abode in the left part of the heart. Except that its garments, namely the thought, speech, and action of the animal soul, <coughs> are not invested in the brain, mouth and hands, and other parts of the body to think and do that which is forbidden. Because God has granted the mind supremacy and dominion over the heart. Therefore, the divine soul and the mind rules over the small city, i.e. over all the parts of the body. Making them the body's organs serve as garment and vehicle i.e. as a means of expression, garment, that is totally subservient to its user, as is a vehicle to its rider. Thus, because of its God-given supremacy, the divine soul is able to use the body's organs as a garment and vehicle. Through which its three garments, namely, the thought, speech, and action of the Torah's 613 commandments, are expressed clothed it may be then that with gar- that with regard to this individual's thinking and speaking words of Torah and performing the mitzvahs, the divine soul rules over the body in this area, the divine soul has the upper hand, and the animal soul is subservient Smusa <laughs> shall However, in its essence and substance, the divine soul has no preponderance over the essence and substance of the animal soul. In the case of a benany, except at those times when his love for God manifests itself in his heart, on propitious occasions such as during prayer and the like, then, as mentioned in the previous chapter, the Bainani is aroused to a burning love of God that causes the evil of the animal soul to be nullified before the goodness of the divine soul. The Afgam Zaisapam, even then, during those times when the divine soul gains the upper hand over the animal soul, Enarak it is limited to preponderance and dominion alone, I, the divine soul succeeds in dominating the animal soul, not in vanquishing it, in the sense of nullifying its essence. As it is written of the battle between Jacob and Esau, allegorically representing the war between the good and evil in man's soul, and one nation shall prevail over the other. Jacob, exemplifying the good, merrily prevails over Esau, the evil, but does not succeed in totally vanquishing him. This agrees with our sages' comment on this verse, When this one rises and prevails, that one falls, and when that one rises, this one falls. The animal soul, although it had fallen during prayer, is afterwards able to rise and rally once again, indicating that the divine soul has not had not succeeded in vanquishing it even during prayer. For which reason, even even its dominance is only temporary. Thus, the divine soul gains strength and ascendancy over the animal soul in the source of strength, Givurais, which is understanding, Bina. In the Kabbalah's description of the spheris, Bina is the source of Givura. In terms of one's divine soul, this means that the source of its strength, Gevurah, to combat the animal soul is found in its faculty of understanding, Bina, the faculty with which it understands the greatness of God. Thus, when the divine soul gains strength over the animal soul during prayer, pondering on the greatness of God, the, the blessed Ein Seif, and thereby giving birth to intense and flaming love of God in the right part of his heart, the az is hapye sitra akhra and then, when the divine soul dominates the animal soul with its intense and revealed love of God, the sitra akhra, the evil of the animal soul in the left part of the heart, is subjugated. But it is not entirely abolished in the case of the Benini. It is so only in a tzaddik, concerning whom it is said, My heart is void within me. The abode in the heart usually occupied by the evil inclination, is void in the heart of a tzaddik. He that tzaddik despises and loathes evil with a cons- with, with a consummate hatred, if he is if he is a complete tzaddik, or without quite utter hatred, if he is an incomplete tzaddik, as explained above in chapter ten. Avil hu Mashal Kaadam all the above applies to the tzaddik, But in a banani the evil merrily lies dormant. As with a sleeping man, for example, who, cannot, who can awaken from his sleep at any time and reactivate his faculties. So is the evil in the banani dormant, as it were. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, where was I? Let me say, try. Sorry about that. So is the evil in the Beneni Dormant, as it were, in the left part of the heart, not functioning at all, not even desiring physical pleasures. During the recital of the Shema and Amida, when his heart is aglow with the love of God, causing the evil of the animal soul to be dormant. Therefore, after prayer, can we awaken? The Alte Rebbe now describes an even higher level of Benini, one who is permeated throughout the day with the same degree of love for God that he feels during prayer. The animal soul of such a Benini is permanently dormant. Accordingly, we will understand how it was possible for Rabba to classify himself mistakenly as a Benini. In chapter 1, it was proved that the term Benini could not refer as a literal interpretation would lead us to believe, to a person half of whose deeds are virtuous and half sinful. Were this so, how could such a sage like Rabbah, who never neglected his Torah study for even a moment, make the mistake of classifying himself as a benani? However, the Alter Rebbe's definition of benani is one who does not sin in practice, does not seem to satisfy this difficulty. Indeed, as the Alter Rebbe explained in chapter 12, a benani never sins, yet he has sinful desires. Rabbah who was in fact a tzaddik, must have known full well that he was free of such desire. How then could he even mistakenly classify himself as a benani? According to the discussion which now follows concerning the level of the benani who never even desires evil, this matter is readily understood. For this reason, Rabbah considered himself a benani. Though his mouth never ceased from Torah study, And his desire was in studying God's Torah day and night, with a craving, desire, and longing. His soul yearning for God with overwhelming love, such as that experienced during the recitation of the Shema and the Amidah. During prayer, as mentioned above, the Benini's heart is aroused to a love of God so passionate that he does not feel the evil of his animal soul at all. Rabba, however, experienced this arousal of love, not only during prayer, but throughout the day. Therefore, his animal soul was always dormant, and he never desired mundane matters. It was therefore possible for him to consider himself a Benini for he appeared in his own eyes as a benini who prays all day, i.e. a who throughout the day retains the level attained during prayer. As indeed, our sages have said, would that a man pray the whole day long. Such a benini is constantly ablaze with the love of God, and consequently his desire for evil is always dormant, as explained. Therefore, the absence of any evil desires did not conclusively prove to Rabbah that he was a tzaddik. It was still possible for him to maintain that he was a benani, a benani who prays all day long. What emerges from all that has been said is that even during prayer, when the benani succeeds in arousing his love of God and rendering the evil dormant, his divine soul has merrily prevailed over his animal soul, but has not vanquished it, for which reason it is possible for this state to cease after prayer. Therefore, the benani's level of divine service Is not considered truthful when compared to the service of the Tzaddik, for truth implies continuity and consistency. The Alta Rebbe goes on to explain that nevertheless, the Beninese love relative to his understanding is considered a true form of service, as will be continued and explained, and not, I don't know, in full tomorrow. We are now up to the Garden of Gratitude, chapter four, proper self assessment. People are shocked to find out that even our sins come from Hashem. But wait a moment. Hashem surely doesn't want us to transgress His Torah. So why does He allow us to sin? Sometimes a person is complacent, thinking that he has nothing to correct. Others feel that they can get by without without learning emuna, and manage with spiritual mediocrity. Still others may have failed to learn certain laws properly. Hashem will let these people sin so that they will have to make Teshuvah, learn emuna, and seek Hashem. Isn't that a beautiful thought in its own way? Especially for me. The first step to true teshuva is confessing one's sins. And tell Hashem anything he or she has done which violates the Torah. The second step is to truly regret this sin and tell Hashem about any regrets about having disappointed him by failing to observe his Torah. These sins are acknowledged because they distance the person from Hashem. The third step to Teshuvah is to ask Hashem for his forgiveness. Hence, the first three steps are confession, remorse, and apology. Following these three steps, a person who has sinned must ask Hashem to show him why he in fact failed to overcome his evil inclination. Master of the universe, why did I fail? Why did you not help me? What did you want me to learn from this? Usually what Hashem wanted is for the person to be roused to pray for the particular matter in question, to pray to be able to overcome his evil inclination, both regarding this particular transgression and his overall observance of Hashem's commandments. For example, Someone came to seek my advice because he had been looking at immodest sights and breach of personal holiness. I told him that he must do teshuva, confess, express remorse, and ask forgiveness. I also reminded him that beyond the various stages of teshuva, he should ask Hashem why he did not help him guard his eyes. By realizing that Hashem did not help him, he'll now pray more and try harder in this particular area. Powerful failure that initiates a process of self-assessment and subsequent teshuva is an amazing impetus to get closer to Hashem. A person should contemplate everything in his life with this context, within this context. If he has failed, rather than blame himself and succumb to depression, he should first seize the opportunity to get closer to Hashem through the three steps of teshuva: confession, remorse and apology. And the fourth step, by asking Hashem's guidance and helping him strengthen and rectify whatever weakness led to the misdeed. Finally, one must resolve to do better, from this moment on, while appealing to Hashem for help in avoiding future sin. If a person says, I obligate myself to guard my eyes always, he is merrily deluding himself. He will surely fail to guard his eyes once again the very next time he encounters temptation. Instead, he must pray to Hashem, Father in heaven, I obligate myself to pray daily for your help with guarding my eyes. This is a worthwhile revolution, resolution, and it's also a revolution, that he can surely keep. Proper self-assessment and daily personal prayer turn setbacks into triumphs by bringing a person so much closer to Hashem. The true path. Expressing gratitude is the most important part Of our personal prayer. Precisely because of its importance, it is not a simple task. Prayer through whining, crying, and begging appears to us to be the natural way to go, but it's a path of least resistance. The evil inclination is happy when we cry and complain, and it certainly won't try to stop us. Effective prayer is the result of a grateful attitude, even in the face of apparent calamity. Such emunah-filled prayer brings Hashem enormous gratification and is readily heard and accepted. The evil inclination will try to interfere with such prayers, but we can strengthen our resolve by realizing that nothing of true value comes easily. Take two. We are now up to, to Kitzel Shabbos, chapter 16, baking and cooking, 14, the, the, the Malacha of Hagasa, stirring. We already mentioned earlier in Section One that some place can say there is a prohibition of hagasa stirring even by a pot of food that is already fully cooked, and that we take that opinion into consideration Latri, therefore, one should be careful whenever possible, for example, when one has the option of removing the pot from the fire, not to take food out of the pot with a spoon or a ladle while it is still standing on the fire because by taking out food with a spoon from the middle of the pot or from the bottom, one stirs the food that is in the pot. Although there are some Piskim that are more stringent, and they say that the prohibition of stirring applies even to a pot that is not on the fire, nevertheless, we are not that stringent because of this opinion, to the extent of forbidding one, even the Khathila to take food out of a pot that is not on the fire, even when one still intends to return it to the fire, since his intention is not for stirring. It is sufficient for one who wishes to follow these Pais to be stringent only regarding actual stirring. However, even actual stirring is permitted once the food has been poured into a cliché. All this applies only to solid foods which are affected by stirring, but water or clear soup and the like are not affected by stirring. Therefore, it is permissible even to take out water with a ladle or a cup from a kettle that is standing on the fire. Although we have stated that there are Pisgim that forbid stirring even by a pot that is not on the fire, and that there are others that do not agree to this, that whole discussion is only concerning food that is already fully cooked. But if the cooking has not yet been completed, then all Pisgim agree that that there is the prohibition to stir it even if it is not on the fire. Therefore, one who removes a pot of food that is not fully cooked from the fire on Shabbos is forbidden to take food out of it in a manner that will be considered stirring. Rather, one must first pour it from the pot into a bowl and then take the food from there. We are now up to Shari Teshuva, the gates of repentance, the third gate, clarifying the stringency of the mitzvahs and prohibitions and the different classifications of punishment, the fourth level, part six. You must not curse judges, nor may you curse a leader of your people. Shemais, chapter 22, verse 27. You must not curse a deaf person. Vayikra, chapter 19, verse 14. We have been admonished herein not to curse a Jew with the use of Hashem's name, nor with any of the appellations of Hashem's name. That which the Torah mentions, you must not curse judges, a leader, and a deaf person, comes to admonish not to curse the judge who finds one guilty, nor the leader who punishes him, delivering him into the hand of of his own iniquity. It is necessary to single out the deaf lest one say there is no punishment for one who curses the deaf since he cannot hear and does not suffer as a result of being cursed. You must not curse judges is stated at the end of Parshish Mishpatim, teaching us that it is forbidden to curse the judge who who, who adjudicates in accordance with these laws. However, the judge who does not rule by these laws may be cursed. Our sages said in Shavoy's 35a, that one who curses his fellow man or himself with Hashem's name is punishable with lashes. Furthermore, his punishment administered by heaven is very severe. As the, as the Pesukim say in Devarim chapter 28, verses 58 and 59, if you are not careful to carry out all the words of this Torah that are written in this book, to fear this glorified and fearful name, Hashem your God, Hashem, will then single out your plagues. Our sages of blessed memory explained in Tamura 3b that this pasuk is referring to one who curses another individual or himself using Hashem's name. It is forbidden for one to say, as this is true, so may God help him, when in reality it is totally false, for he has cursed himself using Hashem's name, since a positive statement always implies its converse as well. Do not drink wine and strong drink, and to differentiate between what is holy and what is profane, and in order to instruct the children of Israel. Vayikra, chapter 10, verses 9 and 11. Our Sages of Blessed memory said in Erevan 64a and Crisice 13b, that one who drinks a revius of wine, undiluted by water, is forbidden to render halachic decisions. If he drinks more than a revius, even though he diluted it, he is also forbidden to render halachic decisions. You shall not abuse your fellow man. Vayikrot, chapter twenty-five, verse seventeen. The pasuk is referring to verbal abuse, as we have already per that, as we have already prefaced. Our sages said in Bava Metzia fifty-eight b, if his fellow man is a repentant, he should not say to him, "Remember your former deeds." And if he is a son, and if he is the son of proselytes, he should not say to him, "Remember your forebear's deeds." This is what the Pusik says in Shemais Chapter 22, Verse 20: You must not abuse the proselyte or persecute him. Do not abuse means verbally, and persecute means financially. The Torah admonishes us in several places regarding the abuse of a proselyte. The reason for this is that he is is that he has forgotten his people and his ancestral home, and has come to take refuge under the wings of the divine presence. Similar to what the pasuk says in Rus, chapter eleven verse eleven, you left your father and mother and the land where you were born and you went to a nation that you did not know. The pasuk also says in Rus, chapter two verse twelve, may your reward to complete from may, may your reward be complete from Hashem, the God of Israel, under your under whose wing you have sought refuge. This is comparable to a deer that joins a flock, and once there lies together with the sheep. Grazing with them, thereby the owner of the flock has compassion on it, for it has forsaken a spacious meadow to dwell in constricted quarters. Midrash Tehillim, one forty-six. We are now at to purity of speech, day 64. Fire! The word sparks fear in the hearts of all men. The slightest suspicion of fire causes people to run for their lives what is so frightening about fire? Fumes spread quickly. Unfortunately, there's no telling the extent of harm they can cause. Machlaikas is compared to fire. We must escape at the slightest suspicion of strife. Which fool would see fire and jump right into it? Unfortunately, there's no telling the extent of harm Machlaikas can cause. Halacha in practice. Rechilos is forbidden even when Repeating information which can cause Ill, which can cause ill feelings is forbidden, even in the following cases. A. You write the information. Writing information which can cause ill feelings is forbidden. B. You agree with the information. Even if you agree with the information, it is still us to repeat it. For example, I always told you that you were lazy. Even Shimon agrees with me. C. You would repeat it in the presence of the speaker. It is usser to repeat information even if you would repeat it in the presence of the speaker. For example, Baruch told you, Your brother is so selfish. Whenever I ask him for a favor, he always refuses me. It would be usur to repeat this statement to your brother even if you would not be afraid to say it in the presence of Baruch. Actually, if you would repeat the insult to your brother in the presence of the speaker, the Avera of Rechilos is magnified. Why? Because if Baruch wasn't there when you repeated what he said, your brother could have assumed that you heard wrong or misinterpreted the comment. However, if Baruch is standing right there, your brother will automatically conclude, if Baruch did not attempt to deny this accusation, it must be true. Consequently, your brother will bear ill feelings against Baruch. We're now up to the last segment of the Daily Learning Hour. Sefer Shemir HaSalashin, Book 1, Epilogue, Chapter 3 the imperative to adopt a mitzvah that society generally ignores. Sefer Haredem writes the following, even though man is obliged to observe all of the mitzvahs, still he should embrace one specific mitzvah and be especially zealous in his performance and throughout his entire life never once violate it. For all of the 613 mitzvahs of Hashem of the Torah are collectively known as the tree of life, as Mishle teaches in chapter 3 verse 18. It is a tree of life for those who grab onto it. And someone who grabs onto one branch of a tree and holds onto it tightly is in fact holding tightly onto the entire tree because all of the tree's branches are interconnected as one. But someone who attempts to grab onto all of the tree's branches, in fact, cannot grasp any of them. Chazal say in Gemara Shabbos 118b. So Chazal and Gemara Shabbos 118b discuss this concept. Rav Nachman said, I will be paid my reward for observing the mitzvah of eating three meals on Shabbos. Rav Shesha said, I will be paid my reward for observing the mitzvah of Tefillin. Rav Nachman said, I will be paid my reward for observing the mitzvah of Tzitzis. Rav Yasef said, to Rav Yasef, the son of Rabbah, what mitzvah is your father particularly careful to observe? He answered, Tzitzis. One day he was climbing up a ladder and one of the strings of his tzitzis tore off. He did not climb down that ladder until he tied new tzitzis onto his garment. Rashi explains that when the Gemara said that Rav Sheshis kept his mitzvah of tefillin, it meant that he was especially careful to observe the mitzvah of tefillin and that he would not walk even four Amis without them. And similarly, regarding the mitzvah of tzitzis, Rav Nachman would not walk four Amis without them until they were repaired, meaning he tied new tzitzis onto his garment. This is the generalized concept that was expressed in the concept of tzitzis in Gemara Tainis 22a, and he did not put on a tzitzis string. See the Sefer Charedim, which brings another source to support this concept, which originates in the Yerushalmi, that the careful observance of one specific mitzvah will improve the quality of his life and lengthen the days of his life in the eternal world that is entirely good. However, regarding our subject of Lashon Hara, based on our times and the indifference of society to what sin is, that a segment of society totally ignores the sin of Lashon Hara and Rechilus and considers them meaningless, if someone would be especially careful to observe these laws of disciplining the speech that comes out of his mouth and not to violate the laws of Lashon Hara or Rachilos, how very, very great will his reward be because of that observance? The statement regarding this idea in Sefer Haridim is very well known. A mitzvah that hardly anyone runs after to perform is like the mitzvah of attending to the urgent needs of the body of someone who died alone and unattended. And if somebody runs after a mitzvah, you should run after it to perform it because that mitzvah is crying out accusingly. How ugly am I that everyone is hiding themselves from me? Yet everyone knows the great importance of attending to the needs of a corpse from a teaching of Chazal in Gemara Brachas 20a, that even the high priest or a nazar who is going to the base of Mikdash to slaughter his lamb, his Passover sacrifice, and must do so in a state of complete ritual, pu- ritual purity, or someone going to circumcise his son, people who may not become ritually impure by coming into contact with a corpse, even if it is the corpse of a relative, all of these people are nevertheless obligated to become ritually impure if they come across a solitary corpse and they must attend to it immediately so that it will not become an object of humiliation. Now let us examine the subject of a neglected corpse, which is nothing more than a clump of clay without a soul or spirit. Yet because this clay once was a body, the temple of a Jewish soul, the Torah was particularly strict and demanding to protect it and not let it become an object of neglect and humiliation. In this regard, the Torah permitted even the high priest or anazer, who may not defile themselves, to offer up the Pesach sacrifice or to circumcise their own son, to ignore that opportunity in order to protect the sanctity of this corpse. A simple, logical deduction extends this concept to our holy Torah, which is more precious than gems, and is the delight of a Baruch Hu, as Mishle teaches in chapter 8, verse 30, and each day I, the tyra, was his delight, that God forbid if a single mitzvah is isolated in humiliation, how very much are we obligated to strengthen that mitzvah so that it will not persecute us later on in Elam Haba. My brother, see the enormity of the total indifference to sinning of an habitual speaker of Lashon Hara, someone who gives no thought at all to, transgress the, to, to transgressing this lav. Even if he speaks badly about a fellow Jew, demeans him and totally denigrates him, if someone were to ask him, why did you speak Lashon Hara in He would offer you 100 reasons why it is permissible and that what he said was not Lashon Hara at all. If someone proved to him that his remarks are absolutely Lashon Hara, he would answer back that even if his remarks met the criteria for Lashon Hara, the Torah's laws forbidding Lashon Hara were never intended to protect this person, as I saw him commit terrible sins, and that he manipulates, flatters people, and it is a mitzvah to publicize his evil behavior. In summary, no matter what you showed this person to prove the enormity of the sin of Lashon Hara, which he committed in speaking about the quote-unquote victim, this person will go back again and again and speak even more lashon hara and rechilus against the victim, to the point where his yetsharah convinces him that the victim is no longer in the category of your fellow Jew and that he no longer deserves to be treated as a Jew, and accordingly, he does not have the protection of that the, the, and accordingly, he does not have the protection the Torah affords the Jews. Can you imagine any other sin being trampled on in this way? For example. If you saw someone transgressing the law by eating meat from an animal that was not killed by ritual slaughter and you warned him that he was violating a law of the Torah and the person was, and this person was uncaring and was not careful to avoid this sin, could you imagine him taking a piece of meat that was forbidden and eating it in front of the person who just warned him not to eat it? And here we are not talking about someone who repudiated his faith, God forbid, and is no longer part of the Jewish people or someone who took his son out of our faith. We are not talking about this kind of person. But when speaking of this terrible, bitter sin of lashon Hara, which is also a love of the Torah, a sin whose punishment is very severe, as we have explained several times, based on the Talmud and our authorities, because of society's indifference to sin, we see that for all of the warning that we give to this person against speaking lashon Hara or Achilles about a fellow Jew, he will turn around and degrade his victim even more and more. All this is because of the habit and the ease with which he can now demean someone else. Because of our indifference to the laws of Lashon Hara, this sin is meaningless to the speaker. Many people who do not routinely commit this sin of Lashon Hara are not as appalled by someone who is speaking Lashon Hara as they would have been if they had seen someone violating one of the other Lavan of the Tyra. There is no more profound neglect of a dead body than the neglect of the sin of Lashon Hara. Wow. Truthfully speaking, the person who routinely speaks Lashon Hara should be ashamed of himself. If he was invited to go up to the Torah and Shul, and the Torah reading involved an aspect of, our, of the Issar of Lashon Hara, for example, in Vayikra chapter 19, verse 16, do not peddle gossip in society, or Devarim chapter 27, verse 24, curse it as anyone who secretly harms his fellow Jew, or in Devarim chapter 24, verse 9, remember what our God did to Miriam. Remember what Hashem our God did to Miriam. Or in Shemais chapter 23 verse 1, do not accept the false report. If the text itself contained mistakes, for example, the barb of the le- on the letter Yud was missing, he would refuse to recite the blessing at the start of the Torah re- reading saying, Hashem's Torah must be perfect, just as God gave it to us and nothing in it can be defective. This person sincerely believes in Hashem Yisbarach and in his holy Torah, and in the sanctity of all of its letters. Yet when this subject of lashon hara appears before him, immediately he discounts the sin and considers this law to be meaningless. That the pesukim pis- of the Tyra, similar to the ones quoted above, to the ones quoted above, which were read to him, are not relevant to him. He does not even think that his choice of words, the language that came out of his mouth, is a sin at all. My brother, see what is written in the twenty-ninth parak of Tana de'Veliyoh Rabba. Whoever recognizes and understands the words of the Torah that are being read and violates them anyway is called an absolute Russia, an absolute evil person.